0: Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Boy, he's been faithful to me. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter number 16. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 13. Matthew chapter 16, verse number 13. We'll read down to verse 24. The Bible says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias or Elijah, and others, Jeremias or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? You know, that's really the question that matters, isn't it? Not the world's opinion, but what's your opinion of Jesus Christ? Uh, we're not going to get to heaven and the Lord's going to take a poll of the, of the world's perspective. He's going to look at you and say, What did you do with Jesus Christ? Did you reject Him or did you receive Him? Whom do ye say that I am? Simon Peter, one of the rare occasions when he opened his mouth and it didn't all go sideways, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. And let me just pause there and say, uh, he calls him Peter, which means a small pebble. But then he says, upon this rock, and he uses a term that means a a boulder or a foundation stone. The Roman Catholic Church is, is wrong, erroneous, and heretical when they say that here Jesus is establishing the church on Peter. We'll see here in a few moments if that was true. Boy, the church had a pitiful start because Peter winds up in trouble before this passage is over. But the Lord's saying nothing of, of, of the sort. What He's saying is, your name is Peter. You're, you're a small image or example. You're a chip off of who and what I am. But Peter, I'm not going to build it on you. I'm going to build it on me. That thou art Peter and upon this rock myself, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then, he charged, then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's stop and pray. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for a wonderful week. Thank you for your rich blessings. And Lord, we rejoice in what you've done, but we set our hearts and minds this morning on what you will do. And Lord, we anticipate you moving in this service. We have everything we need. And Lord, most of all, we have you and you're who and what we need the most. And so, Lord, we know we have what we need to see you work and move in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, I pray that we would have our minds open to the Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be willing receptacles of uh, of your word and that, Lord, we would not balk and we would not fight and we would not bow. and, And, Lord, we would not stiffen our necks, but that we would receive the truth of your word. Lord, may you do a work in us that would please you and would perfect us. God, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 16 is a fascinating moment in the life of the disciple Peter. I want us to notice a statement that the Lord makes to Peter in verse number 23. The Lord, after Peter has taken him and shook him, rebuked him, chided and chastened the Lord for what he was teaching and what he was saying, the Bible says the Lord turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. the Lord's help, I want to preach to you this morning on savoring the things of God versus the things of men. Peter reaches probably one of the most shameful moments in his entire life. You know, really, I think probably if we had a biblical perspective, we'd see more shame in what Peter does here than we even see when he's by the fire and denies the Lord Jesus. For in this moment, he seeks to preempt the authority of Christ to take the mantle of God, and he presumes to order God around and tell God what should and should not happen. When we come to this verse, there is a glaring point that must be discussed if we're going to rightly divide the word of truth. And let me tell you something. I'll help you a little bit in studying your Bible. Don't run away from hard passages. Just dig down into them. This isn't a puzzle book and it's not a mystery book. You don't need a decoder ring that came in a cereal box to figure this thing out. Hey, God wants you to know and understand the Word of God. And if you will read the Word of God in its context and rightly divide the Word of truth, applying Scripture to Scripture and using the Bible as its own dictionary, you'll find that God always has an answer for everything in His Word. And when we come to this passage, probably the most dramatic and the most attention-grabbing phrase in this entire passage is the title that the Lord gives to Peter in this verse. He looks at him and he says this, Get thee behind me, Satan. This immediately prompts questions in our mind. Is the Lord implying that Peter is possessed not just of a devil, but of the devil? I'll tell you my opinion, and I expect that there'll probably be some folks that might disagree with this, and that's all right. I'll still go to heaven with you if you'll still go to heaven with me. Amen? But I want to give you what I believe to be a biblical perspective on this, and then I want to preach to you on what I think is really going on in this passage. Was Christ stating that Peter was possessed of the devil? I want you to consider the following evidence against That perspective. Number one, Peter is not behaving as other possessed individuals in Scripture behave. When you see demon-possessed people in Scripture and they are faced with the Lord Jesus, you find that two things invariably happen. One, the devil always seeks to confess who Christ is. He always will fall down at Jesus' feet and confess who He is. You know why? Because the devils are subject unto His name. Then beyond that, the devils almost invariably in Scripture are always seeking to do harm to the individuals that they are possessing. Physical harm. Over and over again we find them tearing people's bodies, casting them into water, casting them into fire, causing them to cut themselves and harm themselves. And that's certainly not been the case in Peter's example. Let me say number two, another point of evidence against the notion that Peter is possessed by Satan in this passage. And that's that moments before this, Christ applauds him for his divine insight. Now listen, I'm a dispensationalist and I don't have time to explain everything of what that means. But put in a nutshell, it means this, that God deals with man at different times in different ways through human history. And He always dealt with man according to the light that He had given him. Certain things are expected of you and me that ain't expected of Adam because Adam didn't know those things about God. But there are some constants In the Scripture. And let me give you some examples. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. There's never been a time when when performing the works of the law justified a man. Paul says this in no uncertain terms, that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's always been by grace that men have been saved. Let me give you another example of a distinction that is always true throughout the Scripture. And that's the eternal security... All through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you find this to be true, that the believer, because his salvation is vested in the promise of God and not the performance of his good works, has always been eternally secure. The notion that in the Old Testament they could lose their salvation if they didn't uh, obey the law is predicated on the notion that their salvation came from obeying the law. And that's not true. It's simply never been true. I understand there's a myriad of dispensational differences. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God in this day that we live in. We have taken part in the new birth. We've literally been birthed into the family of God. We've been placed into the body of Christ. But it has always been true that if a person uh, believed in God and had righteousness imputed unto them, that once they were saved, they were always saved. The question then presents itself, is it likely that Peter... Obviously, a saved individual, if we can use that terminology, a a sincere, genuine believer in Jesus Christ, who has uh, not just been saved, if we use that term, but has actually received from God a divine revelation about who Jesus Christ is, That just a few moments later, literally in between the time when Jesus says, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which art in heaven. That from that moment to this moment, just a few moments later, that Satan entered into Peter. I think that's very unlikely. Let me give you a third point of evidence against it. And this to me is the most simple but the most compelling. If he is indwelt by Satan, Christ didn't do anything about it. He didn't cast the devil out of him. He didn't command the devil to leave him. And find me another example in Scripture when Christ comes face to face with a demon-possessed individual and does not cleanse that individual of the demon that was possessing them. I think all the evidence in my mind is settled That Peter is not possessed of Satan in the way that later on Judas would be when he would go out and make conspiracy with the chief priests and the elders. Nor is he possessed of some lesser or lower devil in the way that many people are throughout the testimony of Scripture. That then presents a question. Why then does Christ call him Satan? It's interesting. If you ever study what the name Satan means, it means adversary. It's sort of the most classical term that we use in Scripture, and it's the most common term applied to Satan personally. It is his name, but it is also a title. He is the accuser of the brethren. And as Peter would later on call him, and I don't think it's no accident Peter called him this, I think Peter learned his lesson, he would say, Be sober and be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. In other words, he said, your Satan, the devil, wants to destroy you. And when Christ looks at Peter and calls him Satan, he is revealing to Peter that Peter is standing as an adversary to Jesus Christ. And he most assuredly is. Christ is saying it's the will and heart and plan of God that I go up to Jerusalem and be delivered into the hands of wicked men and die on the cross of Calvary. That's the will of God. That's the plan of God. Peter says, I'm not going to let the plan of God be performed. I'm not going to let it happen to you, Lord. I'll stand in the way of the will of God. Christ seems to be revealing to Peter that by being an adversary to him, he is doing the work of the ultimate adversary, The devil. Christ is rebuking Peter for allowing Satan to plant this thought in his mind and is revealing to him that by yielding to his natural or carnal perspective, you remember what he says, thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. That by yielding to his natural or carnal perspective, that he is in fact doing the will of Satan. We could say this, That whereas Peter is operating in the spirit and with a spiritual perspective in verse 16. In verse 22, he is operating in the flesh and with a carnal perspective. Now that should be no surprise given what the Lord says. He says you savor not. And that word savor in your Bible, it means to regard or to understand or to be mindful of. And he's saying to Peter, Peter, you're thinking more about the things of men than you are about the things of God. I don't know about you, but that sort of sounds like how we behave sometimes. You say, well, preacher, what is that in the life of the believer? Well, consider what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says. Verse 11, the Bible says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, say, the spirit of a man which is in him. Even so, the things of God, you remember that's what Christ said, Thou savorest not the things of God. He says, even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You see, in this passage of Scripture, the problem with Peter is in verse 16, he's obviously operating under the influence of the Spirit of God. I understand and I'm fully aware of the fact that the Spirit of God did not indwell believers prior to Christ's resurrection, the blood being applied at the mercy seat, the gift of the Spirit being bought by His blood. But it's also equally true that the Spirit of God is very actively present in the world even prior to that time. And I don't know how else Peter could have had it revealed to him that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God by the father from heaven, except the spirit of God had illuminated his mind. In verse 16, man, he's in the spirit. Verse 22, he's in the flesh. And when he's in the flesh, he savors not the things that be of God. Can I tell you something this morning? Your flesh does not savor the things that be of God your natural condition, your flesh, that part of you that operates outside of the jurisdiction of God's authority, that part of you that always wants to do the opposite of what God wants you to do, that flesh, hey, it doesn't crave the things of God. It craves the things of men. And in this passage of Scripture, which is so arresting when we read it, we find that at the end of the day, it's not that Peter was possessed of Satan. Hey, it's that his flesh was governing Him. Now this immediately becomes far more relevant to me and to you. And let me make three statements about this before I get to preach. Let me say number one, this is a startling statement. Christ is saying this, not some rank infidel that's walking down the road. Not to some Christ denier. Not to some uh, hypocritical Pharisee. Not to some manipulating scribe. Not to some cutthroat priest seeking to take his life. But he's saying this to Peter, one of his own disciples. Man, it's a startling statement. But let me say number two, it's a sobering statement. The preacher, why is it a sobering statement? Because if Christ could say it about Peter, then he could say it about me. See, here's the problem. When you read this passage and you say, well, this super unique spiritual thing occurred wherein Satan indwelt and possessed Peter, and that's why he did this, you have thereby excluded yourself from any probability of ever being guilty of what Peter did. The likelihood that Satan would ever, that any of us would ever be doing enough for God that he'd notice us is probably pretty slight. He's got a million minions he'll send to hassle us. But when we recognize in this passage that Peter is not the victim of some supernatural indwelling by some nefarious being or by Satan himself. But this just old boy that got to thinking about himself and what he wanted and got to operating in the flesh. And next thing you know, man, he's got Jesus by the lapel shaking him and rebuking him. It sobers me to think if Christ could say it about him, he could probably say it about me. And I would say this, it is a stirring statement. Because if we're honest in the reading of our Bible, we must ask ourselves this question this morning. Could Christ say this about me? Not just is it possible, but if we were standing face to face with the Savior today, and Him dispensing to us the truth of His will for our life, His desire for us, His plan for us, Would we find ourselves standing as an adversary to the plan and will of God and saying, Lord, if you're going to do it, you'll have to go through me to get it done. Mm. I don't know about you, but it terrifies me to think that I could be his adversary while he's trying to be my advocate. I want you to notice this passage teaches us five important truths about the flesh and the way the flesh operates. And if there's ever a Sunday, you've got a fighting chance at a short sermon. It's the Sunday after camp. So you hang with me. And I want you to notice these five truths. Notice number one with me this morning, the appetite of the flesh, the heartbeat of this passage, the operative truth, the focal point the thing that Christ was seeking to point out to Peter above even his statement about Satan is, Peter, thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. He wants Peter to understand, Peter, in your natural disposition, in your flesh, in your carnality, you'll have no interest in the things of God. You'll only be interested in the things of men. And i got news for you today. Hey, we may think we're super spiritual. We may think we've attained some level of sanctity that puts us above it all, but I'm here to tell you your flesh is just as dirty, rotten, filthy, and unregenerate as it ever was. The flesh doesn't get sanctified. It don't get justified. It has to be mortified. Your flesh is just as rotten, just as predisposed to to be a rebel and to be a rabble-rouser, to be degenerate and, and, and filthy and ungodly as it was before you ever got saved. We need to recognize that truth, else we're walking around with a blind spot in our lives. Notice two truths here. Number one, I want you to think with me about what the flesh detests. It's interesting to think about what prompted this entire passage of Scripture. You remember what Christ was talking about. Verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples, how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. In other words, what got Peter's flesh so riled up? It wasn't that Christ exposed some deep hidden sin that Peter had. That wasn't what got him riled up. It wasn't that Christ embarrassed Peter in some way in front of the other disciples. No, Christ hadn't done that. You know what bothered his flesh? The cross of Calvary. Calvary bothered his flesh. The thought of Christ dying on the cross annoyed his flesh. And it teaches us three things about what the flesh detests. Number one, the flesh detests the plan of God. This was God's determined Listen to how Calvary is described by Peter himself in Acts chapter 2. He says this, "Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden up. Peter himself will later describe the cross of Calvary not as some tragic mishap, not as some religious unfortunate that took place, not merely as the sad death of a beautiful life, but rather as the express, determinate plan of God. I've got news for you. Calvary did not surprise God. He was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Never for one moment were things out of control. God was in control of every single bit of it. It was not some sad, tragic mishap, but it was the plan of God. And in our text this morning, Jesus is talking about God's plan of redemption. You know, God's plans rarely look like our plans. And if I had planned out man's redemption, if I could have found a way to do it that would have gone around Calvary, I would have done it. But God, in His perfection, in His providence, in His knowledge and wisdom, He marched Jesus up the hill of Calvary and onto a rugged cross to die for your sins and my sins. And what... Peter is hearing this uh, passage of Scripture. Is Christ talking about God's perfect plan? When he starts to talk about God's plan, something in his flesh begins to get riled. And can I tell you something? Your flesh has no interest in the plan of God. That's why when you listen to your flesh, you get into such trouble. Your flesh is never running on a parallel rail to the will of God. It always wants opposite of what God Wants. The flesh detests the plan of God. Then number two, the flesh detests the purity of God. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, we've seen in this passage what God's plan was. We've seen the what, but that then begs the question of the why. Undoubtedly, Peter did not understand all of the reasons behind Christ going to the cross of Calvary. But you and I understand it today that if we were going to be redeemed and if sin was going to be dealt with, there was only one way that could transpire. And that was for Christ as the Lamb of God, which the away the sin of the world to go and die for our sins. I got news for you. Hey, And Calvary wasn't just about rescuing you and I. It was about reconciling the sin of the world and reckoning with it. The Bible says this in Habakkuk chapter number 1 verse 13, about the Lord, thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. Christ, hey listen, was not just reconciling the world unto God, He was reconciling God unto the world. Unless God would have to just annihilate His creation, scrub the universe clean of it and start fresh and a sin had to be dealt with. There's no greater monument to God's holiness than the cross of Calvary. He yeah. takes it so seriously that He would die before He would let it be trespassed. Peter listens to this and it bothers him that there's no way around it. But then I would say this, not only the plan of God and the purity of God, but you know what your flesh hates? It hates the power of God. The Bible tells us this about the cross of Calvary and the preaching of that cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. There's no greater expression not only of God's love, but of His power, of His ability to overcome the obstacle of obstacles, man's sin, man's depravity, man's degeneracy, than the cross of Calvary. And Calvary can do things that no human power can do. Calvary can take the drunkard and turn him into a choir singer. The Calvary, hey, can take the prostitute and turn him into a Sunday school teacher. Listen, Calvary can take the dope fiend and put him in a pulpit and preach with the power of God. Calvary is the power of God. God would have had no power in men's lives apart from the cross of Calvary except to judge them and destroy them. And Calvary is the expression of God's power. And when Peter's flesh hears this, it rankles against it. It's bothered by it. And i got news for you. Hey, listen, operating in the flesh, you ain't going to have no interest in God's plan. Operating in the flesh, you ain't going to have no regard for God's purity. Operating in the flesh, you will put no value upon God's power. The flesh has no interest in any of these things. And because Peter is operating in the flesh, he cannot see what God is desiring to do. The flesh does not savor the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. So here's the question. What are the things that be of men? What does the flesh desire? And I've got just two simple thoughts here, and then we'll move on. I would say this. The flesh always desires personal advancement. Do you remember the context here? Do you remember what Christ had said unto Peter back in verse number 19? He says to Peter, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That sounded pretty good to Peter. You know, all the way up even after the resurrection and even to the day of the ascension of Jesus Christ, His disciples were still anticipating the imminent establishment of an earthly kingdom. i got news for you. Christ is going to set up an earthly kingdom. But the reason Israel missed their Messiah is because they couldn't get their heads wrapped around the fact that God wanted to do something greater in them than what He wanted to do around them. And they couldn't understand that there was a spiritual aspect to the kingdom of heaven. And Peter in this moment, no doubt he's thinking to himself, alright, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, we're going to whoop them all, we're going to take control of everything, establish a perimeter, coronate Jesus on the throne, put a crown on His head, He's going to be king, and we're all going to be running things. And then Christ selects Peter and pulls him to the side and says, Peter, you're going to have the keys. Now, I don't know if you know this. We won't really do this no more. Uh, here in Knoxville, somebody done stole our keys to the city. Amen. But for a lot of years, it was common for, you know, know, cities to have keys to the city. And it was a symbolic thing that showed a place of honor and a place of authority. If there was a special citizen or somebody that had done something of note, they would give them the keys to the city. What they were saying is the city is yours. You have control. Anything here is at your disposal. And when Peter hears this, I get the keys to the kingdom. He thought, oh, man, I'm set up. That sounded real good. And Peter's sitting there going, all right, Lord, what's the plan? And Jesus says, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. Peter says, all right. And Jesus says, we're going to go into where them chief priests are and them scribes. And Peter, he's getting his sword out and he's sharp. Uh-huh, Lord, okay. And who do you want? You want me to take James and John? Don't, take Bar- Don't send Bartholomew with me. He's slow and he snores. Lord, how are we going to do this? And Jesus says, well, then they're going to come out. You know, Peter, they're going to come out to arrest us. And Peter says, uh-huh, I'm ready. You see this sword, don't you? I'm ready. And Jesus says, and they're going to take me. Peter says, they're going to take you. Oh, you mean covert? Is this part of the plan? No, Peter. I'm going to let them arrest me. And they're going to take me. And they're going to lie about me. And they're going to make false accusations against me. And I'm not going to speak a word. I'm going to be led as a lamb to the slaughter. Peter, they're going to beat me. They're going to rip out my beard. They're going to spit on me. They're going to strip me naked, Peter. And they're going to lay my back open with that cat of nine tails. They're going to take a crown of thorns and press it over my head, robe me in purple and mock me. And then they're going to nail me to a cross, Peter. And I'm going to die there. But Peter, after three days, I'm going to get up from the dead victorious now what Peter should have said is Lord that's a plan (laughs) they'll never see it coming and death won't either you know what I think he said instead but what about my keys Lord but what about the kingdom Lord but what about my place beside you Lord You see, I don't think Peter was so disturbed at the thought that Jesus was going to die. I think he loved him. I think that bothered him. But was Peter upset because he believed Christ had just promised him some special place of authority in Christ's kingdom? And now all of a sudden it seems like that's being robbed from him? Can I tell you this? You know what the flesh wants more than anything? It wants to put itself on the throne. It ain't so much interested in crosses. It's more interested in crowns. It ain't so much interested in suffering, it's interested in scepters. It's not so much interested in the things of God, it's interested in the throne of authority. And the flesh is never interested in anything that doesn't serve itself. I think the flesh desires personal advancement. Number two, I think it desires personal authority. One of the most alarming instances in scripture, he literally, the Bible says he took him he grabbed him and began to rebuke him with vehement passion what was he trying to do why do we do such a thing i i, I don't i don't abuse my kids I, I i don't you know i don't throw them down hills or anything except at camp and and I, but sometimes if my son's not listening i'll grab him by the shoulder and i'll turn him around to face me and what am i doing i'm i'm exerting my will Above his will. I'm wanting him to understand. I'm in control. And you're going to stop. And you're going to listen to me. Because I have authority over you. Why did Christ take him by the shoulders? Or why did Peter take Christ by the shoulders? And turn him around and begin to rebuke him? He was saying, I'm not going to let this happen to you. I don't care that it's what you want. I don't care that it's what God wants. It's not what I want. And what I want is what counts. You know what the flesh craves? Personal authority. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to tell you what to do. You're not going to run me. I'm going to run you. And that's the reason it happens to all of us. Anytime we find ourselves in a carnal state of mind, in a fleshly disposition, and all of a sudden, some opposition, some authority exercises itself. We don't have to try. We don't have to put our mind to it. We don't have to exercise it. That back just begins to bow up. And it's no different in our relation with God than it is with earthly authority. Your flesh is not interested in submitting to the authority of God. In fact, the Bible says that the, the natural man is not subject To the things of God. It it cannot be. You see your flesh is never going to quietly meekly bow the knee to Jesus. It's going to have to be put under. If it's ever going to bow to him. When I read this passage I learn something about the appetite of the flesh. But then think with me for a moment. About what I'm going to call the ambush of the flesh. So preacher what do you mean the ambush of the flesh? Well think about verse 17. I mean, and Peter sort of had this experience often in, in his walk with the Lord. Things could not have been going better than they could have, than they were in verse 17. Read verse 17 with me. Jesus answered and said unto him, Peter has said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Bar Jonah, means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Man, what glowing praise that is. I mean, you could have no more certifiable evidence and and, and certification that Peter is doing right, living right, thinking right, than verse 17. The Lord, the infallible Lord, whose word is perfect and pure and, and, and unbroken, looks at Peter and says, hey, bless your heart, son, you've been talking to my father. He's told you who I really am and you've been listening and bless your heart, I mean things. Hey, Peter, good job. And I'm talking like five, four verses later, Christ is looking at him and saying, get thee behind me, Satan. You know what that teaches me? teaches me two things. One, the flesh is never far away. And two, Things can change like that. See, here's the funny thing. We think of things in a seasonal sense because that's sort of in a broad perspective how we experience life. And most of us would look back at our life and say, well, there are seasons I was walking with God. And there are seasons when I was out of the will of God. And we could look back at these big swaths of time in which we were walking with God. And we sort of get the idea that that the Christian life is sort of like a a big sailing ship that doesn't turn in one move, but it's sort of a multi-maneuver process. And I will tell you, it is certainly true, there are often many steps on the path to destruction. But can I tell you something? You can be walking with God, living for God, testifying for God, serving God one minute. And your flesh, and you say, Preacher, how close is my flesh? Sitting in your lap. Can take over and control you and wreck your testimony and shame your life in a moment. You don't think so. Hey, listen, let somebody honk at you at a red light. Well, I'm glad the church, church of Christ ain't right, man. I'd lost my salvation a hundred times this morning. <laughs> hey, listen, the flesh, it's always lurking behind your shoulder, waiting to pounce. Amen. I read this passage. I learn about the ambush of the flesh, but I also learn about the agitator of the flesh. I'll not belabor it. We spend a lot of time examining it. But do you notice that the Lord looks at Peter and says, Get thee behind me. Satan. In other words, what he is saying, again, I'll stress, is not, Peter, you're indwelt by Satan. What he's saying is this. You're acting like he does, Peter. You're standing as an adversary to me, Peter. You're not doing my will, Peter. You're doing his will. Can I remind you? Satan is ever looking for opportunity to co-opt your flesh and to govern your life. The only way he can... Is if you operate in the flesh. You understand it's the only part of you he has jurisdiction over. If you're born again by the grace of God, the new man has been regenerated, awakened, sensitive, to the uh, will and to the desires of God. And the Spirit of God indwells you. We are a tripartite being. You understand that, right? We're a three-part being as a born-again saved individual. We still have the old man, the flesh, but we have the new man, the new mind in Jesus Christ that sees things through a new perspective and is energized by and interacts with the Spirit of God who indwells us and leads our lives. He can talk to that new man, but the new man can't hear the devil. He can try to talk to the Spirit of God, but I think he knows better than to try. But oh boy, that flesh loves to hear him sing. And so here's what happens. He comes along and it ain't, it ain't. oh, Flip Wilson wasn't right. The devil did not make you do it. Your flesh did it. But here's the thing. Your flesh was interested in and countenanced the will of Satan. You want to do the will of Satan, you ain't got to go out and dress in black robes and sacrifice a goat and, and, and draw a pentagram on your floor. You ain't got to do all that to serve Him. Uh, you don't have to go out and and, and, and and try to abduct children and get them into all kinds of wicked and nefarious things and sell them and traffic them and, and engage them in occultism to serve Him. You don't have to do all that. Hey, all you have to do is is operate in the motions of the flesh and you'll accomplish what He wants you to accomplish. I see the agitator of the flesh, but then I notice the aggression of the flesh. Verse 22, Peter took Him and began to rebuke Him, saying, Be it far from Thee, Lord, this shall not be unto Thee. <laughs> it's funny. I, and I can't, I can't preach after camp without telling, you know, a camp illustration. And one of the things that's funny up there at camp, you know, we're all just swimming around on the same hill for a week solid. And you really get to know people. You get to know their voice. You know, you get to know their personality. You get to know their smells. I mean, you, you really, it gets, it gets deep up at camp. And, you know, long about Thursday, we're all dead to the world. We ain't had no sleep. We're just exhausted. And even the kids are that way. And the kids, they've been used to, I mean, some of them, you know, they ain't never around other kids for this amount of time. And they have been for like four days straight, been around kids. And every once in a while, you'll catch a kid. You'll go to tell them to do something, and they forget that you're not another kid. And they'll give you some lip, and then they'll turn around and see who you are and go, because all of a sudden they realize they got a little aggressive with you, and that you as an adult, you're not going to abide that. I think about this passage of Scripture. And here's the point when a child does that. We look at them and we think to ourselves, who do you think you are, son? You're not the authority up here. Who do you think you are? You better fix that tone. We're we're shocked by the boldness of a child to speak out of turn and to exert authority that doesn't belong to them. Could you imagine how Jesus felt? When Peter grabs God and shakes Him and rebukes Him. We're shocked when we read it and we think to ourselves, Peter, who do you think you are? But hey, let me tell you something. Your flesh is just as aggressive with God. Your flesh is just as bold to tell God to sit down and be quiet. Your flesh is just as bold to tell God that they run you and that he doesn't. Flesh is an aggressive thing. That old man is an aggressive thing in our life. Notice two things it seeks to do. Number one, it seeks to master God. Grabbed him and said, it won't be your will, Lord. It'll be my will. And that's what that struggle is in our life when we know the will of God and we're battling to see it done is we know what God's will is, but our flesh is saying it don't matter. Do what you want, not what He wants. And we seek to master God. But then I thought this was interesting. Remember, this is all in response to the Lord's teaching. The Lord says, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and scribes, be killed and raised again the third day. And you know what the flesh says? The flesh says, don't tell me that. Don't talk to me about that. I don't want to listen to that. I don't want to hear that. You know what the flesh does in its aggression, in its boldness, in its arrogance? Not only does it seek to master God, it seeks to mute God. Don't tell me those things I don't want to hear. Don't tell me those things that that I'd have to fix in my life. Don't tell me those things that are wrong with the way that I'm living. I don't want to hear things that are contrary to my perspective and to my ideas about my life and about the world around me. Hey listen, I don't care. I, I've been up, I've been up them stinky kids for five days. But it don't matter whether it's stinky kids or Sunday adults. Your flesh hates being told you're wrong just like theirs does. You got as many attitude problems as they've got. They just ain't got cars to get in and drive away and cuss the preacher on the way home. But ain't no different for you than it is for them. Our flesh doesn't want to hear the things that God has to say about it. You know why? God ain't got a single nice thing to say about your flesh. And because of that, the flesh does not want to hear Him. I see in this passage the appetite of the flesh and the ambush of the flesh, the agitator of the flesh, the aggression or arrogance of the flesh. But I'm glad it doesn't end there. God doesn't leave Peter without an answer to his problem. He looks at him and he says this, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I see in this passage the answer to the flesh. The Lord on several occasions uses similar language as this. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And you'd be helped. I remember a preacher years ago just looking at examples when Christ said to take up your cross and the different different occasions in scriptures. It's a fascinating study. But I think sometimes because that's such a familiar and iconic statement in Scripture, we sometimes strip it of its contextual application. We miss why Jesus said it. And I want you to think about it in the context of what he just said. Peter's standing toe-to-toe, face-to-face, eye-to-eye with Jesus. Jesus looks at the other disciples. He looks back at Peter and he says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, why did he say that? Jesus said, I'm on a path to Calvary. I'm headed for a cross. Peter jumps in his way, says, no, you're not, Lord. And he looks at him and he says, get behind me. Get out of my way. I'm going to the cross. Then he looks at his disciples and he says this. I'm going to Calvary. And if any man will come after me... You know who would come after him? The people behind him. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In these simple thoughts, Christ reveals how we deal with the flesh. Notice number one, it must be put in its place. Peter, you're in front of me, and you're in between me and the cross. You're in the wrong place. You've sought to to uh, to subjugate me to your will. You've uh, sought to snatch away from me my authority, and that is not your place, Peter. Get behind me, where you belong. You know the flesh always tries to get in between Christ and the cross. And in getting in between Christ and the cross, it was getting between Peter and the cross. And in doing so, what it was seeking to do was master the will of the Lord and take the authority away and to stand up as the leader in the outfit. And Christ says, it's not your place, Peter. Get back in line where you belong. You know what we have to do with the flesh? First thing we have to do is we've got to put it in its place. we got to remind ourselves that our flesh has no right to govern us. I want you to listen to me. Your flesh has no jurisdiction over you. You're bought with a price. You are not your own. That's what Paul says. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Your body is a living sacrifice unto God. It is not yours. We live in a world, people say, well, it's my life, I'll do what I want with it. It's my body, I'll do what I want. I got news for you. If you're born again, it ain't your life, it ain't your body, don't belong to you it belongs to Jesus Christ he paid the price on Calvary he bought you out he has the title deed to your life and when your flesh bows up and says well it's my life I'll run it what we have to do is say uh-uh flesh it ain't your life you didn't have no life you were dead in trespasses and sins and the life that we have is not of you it's of God he had to put it in its place And listen, and Paul used this language. He talked about keeping under his body. He said in Ephesians 4.27, to neither give place to the devil. In Romans 13.14, he said, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. All this is language conveying the idea of not giving the flesh or the devil authority in our life. Put it in its place. Then I would say, number two, it must not only be put in its place, it must be put to death. Christ says, if any man will come after me. In other words, Peter, now you're behind me. And if you want to follow me, here's what you're going to have to do. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. It's interesting when the Lord talks about the cross because we use this language. I've even used it some today, talking about him setting his face towards the cross, and Him headed towards the cross, and their opinion of the cross, and their perspective on the cross. And all that is true of the Lord. He, of course, knew how He would die. But you understand that just as today, there's more ways to die than there is to live. I mean, if you don't believe me, spend a week at camp with me. There's more ways to die. I mean, there's only one way to live, but there's a million ways to die. And the Lord would talk about dying and... The disciples had no reason to believe that that would necessarily impute or imply the idea of being crucified on a cross. When he talked about a cross, they wouldn't have associated it necessarily with his death, but they certainly would have associated it with their death. You see, they didn't know it was how he was going to die, but they did know that it was a way that anyone could die. When he said, take up your cross, they wouldn't have necessarily associated that with the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and 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 sort of uh, uh, imputing his death to us and appropriating uh, his life to us. And all those wonderful, precious New Testament truths that we understand now in light of Calvary, they wouldn't have necessarily understood all that. When he said, deny himself, take up his cross, follow me, they would have just simply said, he's telling us we have to die if we're going to live. Now, What was the context in which they understood this? Well, I don't know of a single disciple going out and killing themselves except Judas, who didn't do it to take up his cross, but died of his shame. So he's obviously not telling them to go commit self-harm or suicide, and they obviously wouldn't have understood it in that way because none of them went out and did that. So how would they have understood it? Well, they would have understood it in the way that you and I would understand it today in the sense of mortifying or putting to death Self and letting Christ govern you. Paul talked about this explicitly. Romans chapter 6, he says, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over Him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You say, preacher, what does it mean to die to self? What does it mean to mortify self? What does it mean to deny yourself, to take up your cross? What Paul says here, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Romans chapter 8, he would say this, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. He would say in verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. He picks it up again in Colossians 3, 5, when he says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, unclean, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. You say, preacher, what can I do with the flesh? I'll, I'll renovate it. Uh, preacher, I'll rejuvenate it. You don't understand. I mean, I, 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 I will in some way fix it. I will in some way spruce it up. I, I will make sure that it is is somehow fixed and somehow better. No, give up on that because your flesh is never going to be better. Your flesh is never going to be righteous. Your flesh is never going to be holy. You're going to have to put a nail in it. You're going to have to put it on a cross. You're going to have to mortify it and reckon it dead. And say, it doesn't get to govern me. It doesn't get to run me. It doesn't get to live me. Instead, it has no import in my life. See, the truth is we all battle the flesh. The only people not battling the flesh are those that have already surrendered to it. We all battle the flesh. And we need to not underestimate the danger of the flesh in our lives. Your biggest problem is not that person that harasses you. Your biggest problem is not that neighbor that gets on your nerves. Your biggest problem is not that coworker that makes fun of you and costs you. Your biggest problem in your life is you, your flesh, yourself. And if you can get that under control, hey, listen, all the other battles, all the other enemies won't be much. It's your flesh. It's your flesh. It's your flesh. Preacher, what can I do? Mortify it. Surrender it. Put it to death. And let God govern your life. Let's bow together this morning. Musicians going to come play and the altar is open. I love them camp kids because they don't wait for a piano player to get in the altar. They don't wait for anybody to sing to get in the altar. They just, the moment altar call starts, they should come down get with the Lord. I like that. It tells me the mean business. They're not waiting for somebody to tell them. They know they need to do business with God. I love it. If God's dealt with your heart, why don't you slip out of your seat and meet the Lord in the altar. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.